You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello out there in uh, archaeology podcast land. This is Dr. Alan Garfinkel. I'm the president and founder of the California Rock Art Foundation. And what we do is we identify, evaluate, manage, and conserve rock art both in Alta, California and in Baja, California. We conduct field trips. We have trainings, exercise. We do research. And in every way possible, we try to preserve, protect, and coordinate treasures of Alta and Baja California rock art, of which there are many and diverse. We also work closely with Native Americans and uh, partner with them to recognize and protect sacred sites. So for more info about the fabulous California Rock Art Foundation, you can go to carockart.org. Also, I'm, I'm open to give me a call, 805-312-2261. We would uh, welcome sponsorship or underwriting, uh, helping us to defray the costs of our podcasts. And also membership in California Rock Art Foundation. And of course, donations since we are a 501c3 nonprofit scientific and educational corporation. God bless everyone out there in podcast land. You're listening to the Rock Art Podcast. Join us every week for fascinating tales of rock art, adventure, and archaeology. Find our contact info in the show notes and send us your suggestions. Hey out there in Archaeology Podcast land, this is uh, Dr. Alan Garfinkel for episode 99. We've got Mine Rat Andre, goes by Andy, a biogeochemist who's worked all over the world in dating rock art. You won't want to miss this one. He's a genius and has been published in uh, several different scientific journals. And his uh, means of dating rock art has been working. Hello out there in archaeology podcast land. This is uh, Dr. Alan Garfinkel, your host for the 99th episode of the Rock Art Podcast. And we are really blessed and honored to have uh, Mine Rat Andre, who goes by Andy, a biogeochemist, director of the Max Planck Institute for Chemistry in Mainz, a review editor of the Journal of Science, a fellow of the American Association for the advancement of science. And he and his associates have published uh, more than 500 articles and books in uh, scientific journals. And he tells me that that uh, Wikipedia uh, effort is probably out of date. Is that correct, Andy? Yes, I think it is. I actually haven't looked at it myself for quite a while. Andy and I met when he and I did um, a bit of research on the Koso rock art there in the Western Mojave Desert. Andy was kind enough to to spend uh, quite a bit of time with us and uh, do some dates, and we'll get to that one probably uh, in the second segment. But Andy, I'd like you to spend a little bit of time giving people a soundbite about your your background and your interests and uh, how you uh, thread the needle, per se, and got out to the study of dating of rock art which is uh, quite a remarkable subject. Well, yeah, I don't quite know how far to go back, but, uh, well, in fact, when I was just finishing um, high school, I had to decide uh, whether I was going to do uh, one of my favorite things, and that is going into anthropology, ethnography, or another one, which is uh, going into chemistry. 
And I guess eventually I decided um, chemistry had sort of, uh, well, better career prospects and uh, ended up going into chemistry. And then um, since uh, living and working in a lab all the time really didn't satisfy me so much, I ended up going into geochemistry and studied hard rocks in uh, Norway and um, then eventually moved on to soft rocks, to seawater, to the atmosphere. And one of my field trips uh, actually ended up in the California desert and I saw all this black stuff uh, that was coating the rocks out there. And that sort of puzzled me at the time. Well, this rock varnish, desert varnish stuff, where does that come from? How does that form? And that's a question that I actually first asked myself sort of in the uh, mid-1970s. Then pretty much forgot about it until I read an article um, 10 or so years ago about uh, the biological involvement in forming this uh, this rock varnish. So I thought, hmm, that's an interesting topic. So I started to look at the geochemistry and the biogeochemistry of rock varnish. Now, how did I get into uh, the anthropology, archaeology part of it? Well, I thought, uh, naive uh, geochemist that I am, that the archaeologists uh, would know how old... Uh, rock art is, and, and I was interested in the question of so how fast does desert varnish form? So, what's the idea? I go and find rock art someplace, I measure the amount of varnish on there, and then ask the archaeologist how old is that rock art, and then, well, I can calculate how fast the varnish forms. It so turned out I had, well, overestimated uh, the archaeologists because the first question they asked me is, uh, well, We don't know how old that stuff is, but we'd like you to tell us with all your beautiful measurements. And well, so that's how I ended up working for, well, by now, probably about a decade on uh, trying to figure out how to uh, make measurements on rock art and how to actually come up with uh, estimates for for the age of that rock art. Now, you began your studies in uh, the Middle East, did you? In uh, Saudi Arabia? Yeah, I first uh, worked in in Saudi Arabia, and the great advantage there for my purposes was that uh, there, the desert of Saudi Arabia, you find a lot of inscriptions. Um, So uh, people in the Middle East uh, were pretty much the first to develop writing, and uh, they applied this writing to all sorts of things, like to uh, mud, uh, clay, bricks, and so on and developed one of the, the first uh, styles of writing there. But uh, they also wrote on rock, and they did this in the same way that other rock artists created. They scraped uh, off or picked off uh, the rock varnish, and then they had um, sort of uh, light-on-dark inscriptions. And uh, the nice thing is they started to do that, well, some two and a half to maybe 3,000 years ago, and they used different styles of writing, different alphabets. And the, uh, the epigraphers, the people who start, uh, who study uh, inscriptions and writings, uh, the epigraphers had a fairly good idea as to uh, what styles were used when. So there is all these things called Hismaic and Safaitic and Datanitic and so on, um, different styles of writing. So if I made measurements on those things, actually, then I could get an idea as to, well, 
knowing how old they are, knowing how much new rock has, uh, varnish has formed on these, uh, on these inscriptions, then I could get an idea as to how fast that varnish forms. The other nice thing about uh, working in, in Arabia is that there's been some really sharp climatic transitions. There was something called an uh, Arabian humid period, which ended about, well, about 5,000 years ago. During that humid period, there was enough rainfall in Arabia that water was pretty much reliably available, and uh, that enabled people to hold cattle. Because cattle, actually, they need to drink basically pretty much once a day or at least every other day. And uh, so in inscriptions that date back to the humid, or rock art that dates back to the humid period, you do see cattle. And then about 5,000 years ago, the cattle disappear from the rock art. And uh, what we'll find then is the, um, the domesticated camel, because that's a dry adapted animal. And so we use these sort of transitions uh, in, in, the, in the ecology and, um, and in human activities, as well as inscriptions to give you a fairly good idea as to um, markers, how old things are. And then from that, you derive the rate at which the varnish accumulates. And then knowing that rate, you can then start to date things uh, that don't have any identifying things like climate transitions or, or writing. You can then date things like humans uh, that are seen in beautiful dancing scenes from the, about 10,000 years ago, uh, actually, uh, the early Holocene, pre-Neolithic figures, down to horsemen scenes that are maybe about 1,000 years old in the Arabian desert. Pretty amazing. Tell us a bit about what rock varnish is and what you've learned about the nature of how it's formed. I believe it's a, yeah. it's, it's still a, a somewhat of a controversial subject. And I know I've, I've read extensively about it, but what do we think we know about how this desert varnish is accumulated uh, principally on sandstone and also on uh, volcanic rocks I would presume, although I have seen it on granite as well. Yeah, I mean, rock uh, varnish or desert varnish, some people call it, or rock varnish, pretty much can form on almost any surface that's resisted enough to weathering to stick around for thousands or tens of thousands of years. And uh, so basalt is a very good substrate. It forms nicely on basalt. It just also forms on granites, lots of granites, gneisses. Um, it doesn't like to form on carbonate rocks because they tend to dissolve too rapidly. So on limestones, typically you don't find it. People have argued a long time about how it forms. So first, what is it? Well, it's a uh, visually dark, blackish, dark brown, thin layer of a mixture of clay minerals, manganese oxides, iron oxides, the occasional quartz grain. The way it forms now is uh, that actually dust settles on a rock surface and that dust contains, uh, just like any other rock or material on the earth's surface, contains elements uh, including manganese. And manganese is kind of an interesting element uh, because it can exist in many different chemical forms. There's one form, which is called manganese-2, and that's quite a soluble material. 
this manganese 2 can be oxidized to manganese 4, which is very insoluble. So you can think about the same way, kind of as iron. You can have iron as a metal. You can dissolve that iron like an acid, and then it's soluble. But if you take that iron and let it oxidize to form basically rust, then it becomes very insoluble, and then it coats the surface. And so in a way, uh, it's akin to rust formation. The um, manganese gets extracted by solutions, by a little bit of moisture that's on the rock and coats the dust, gets extracted, and then it becomes oxidized and re-precipitates. And so it's, the, as I say, it's the, the manganese equivalent to, to uh, iron rust. So how does it form? Well, the dust settles on the rock, then comes some humidity, which gets deposited from a little bit of rain, a little bit of dew, and extracts the manganese. It gets exposed to the air, gets oxidized, and then the manganese oxides that precipitate, they just bind together as a cement of some of the dust, some of the mineral grains, some of the clay minerals, and form this thin layer on the rock, it's about oh, uh, off the order of uh, a human hair or the thickness of maybe 10 times the thickness of a human hair, that sort of order of magnitude. And it forms a nice, dark, shiny coating uh, that you can see a lot when you go out into the desert, both on boulders on the ground and also on rock outcrops, vertical surfaces. And uh, that makes uh, sort of a canvas for an artist, uh, a Stone Age artist who uh, then can inscribe basically into this into this rock varnish his writing or his art figures. What I believe I've seen throughout the California desert and other places throughout the Great Basin, but uh, mainly in California, is uh, the substratum is basalt, and of course this desert varnish has a uh, gray or blue or even black. Uh, tenor to it. And what happens is they, they use uh, some sort of a pick, some sort of a quartz pick to penetrate the varnish to expose the heart rock, which is the light heart rock that's unvarnished. And then this appears as the elements or the particular incisions that are produced on the canvas and is the basis for the art forms or the writing or the engravings that occur. Am I correct? Yes, exactly. This can be done in a number of different ways. It can be done by basically direct uh, incision. So the guy just um, takes a, a sharp rock and starts pecking away directly on the uh, substrate on the surface that he wants to put the rock art onto. Well, I'm saying he because we assume that most of rock artists may have been men, but we don't actually know that. And uh, given the fact that there is also female shamans, and it may well have been that, uh, and shamans have been implicated in, in creation of rock art. So it may well be that there's also uh, female rock artists. Uh, but anyway, our rock artists uh, can do this by, by basically the direct uh, percussion, direct hit, directly hitting the rock surface with a with a sharp rock chisel, or to make more sophisticated rock art, they can take one sharp 
chisel and another hammer stone, put the chisel onto his, his rock surface and then pound on the back of it with the hammer stone, which allows much more control. Other methods are actually, which works well on sandstone, are, are taking a, a chisel and basically scrape or grind off larger surfaces. So there are a number of techniques that have been used to clear the, the varnish off of the rock substrate. Andy, let's uh, stop there. And in the next one, I think we'll uh, dive a little deeper into some of the research that you've published dating rock art in uh, four different publications. See you in the flip-flop, gang. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. Well, welcome back, everybody. We're really blessed and honored to have Andy with us, Meinrad Andre, who's a biogeochemist, and he's the gentleman who's been pioneering the uh, XRF method of dating rock art throughout the world. And uh, Andy, are you with us? Yes, I am. So let's uh, open it up in the second segment and get to some of the nuts and bolts. People tell us that rock art is nearly impossible to date, and they also tell us that uh, many of the methods that have been attempted are in fact controversial and subject to some tremendous problems and scrutiny. Do you agree with that or no? Well, I think there's a number of methods, as you say, and uh, I think they have strengths and weaknesses. Uh, I think with any of those methods, it's uh, very easy to produce uh, wrong results, but I think they all have, have some merit. Of course, rock art, well, some rock art actually contains uh, carbon that uh, one could in principle use to make uh, carbon-14 age measurements. And uh, that is more or less sort of the the gold standard for actually determining ages in the sort of range to which it's applicable to, something like 50,000 years. In order for that to be valid, you have to have carbon, which is actually directly connected to the rock art uh, that you're studying. And uh, as I say, with some kinds of rock art pictographs, which are like painted onto rock, there may be organic binders or charcoal that they've been using. And that then can be reasonably well related to the actual age to the time of creation. So presumably, if somebody has taken, for instance, charcoal to draw on, on, on rock and create pictographs that way, presumably that charcoal is uh, contemporary with the artist, more or less, and thus it actually would reflect the date of, of rock art creation. Right. What we're talking about here, for the most part, are rock drawings, or what we call petroglyphs, Right. And unfortunately, when we do rock drawings in petroglyphs, those are lacking in the organics that uh, typically are needed to do any sort of radiocarbon dating. Yeah, I mean, some uh, petroglyphs uh, appear to include some fragments of, uh, of organic matter under the newly formed uh, rock varnish. 
and that has been used, but has been also very controversial. Ron Dorn took measurements uh, along those lines, and there's been a huge uh, mess in the literature about uh, whether those things were valid or not, or all sorts of dark accusations have been made. But that aside, the creation of rock art petroglyphs consists in the removal of something. And so if you remove something, then, well, that makes it uh, difficult to actually come up with a date. So people have been using uh, weathering processes, like the rate at which um, the sharp edges on the, um, uh, on the minerals that uh, are in, in the, in behind the rock art, so to speak, which those sharp edges become rounded again by, by weathering. That's been maybe a, a useful method for, in, in some instances, but it's quite difficult to calibrate. People have been using other approaches, uh, such as uh, layering of uh, inside rock varnish that has been newly formed. There is a, uh, a gentleman named Yu who has been using that successfully. But uh, the problem with most of those things is that um, a, they're difficult to calibrate, and B, many of them require actually removal of samples, and that's just not something that's very popular in archaeology because you really don't want to start scraping away material from this uh, precious rock art. Yeah, you don't want to be a destructive method. So what, what helps us with your method and others that's non-destructive is to use some sort of a portable XRF machine that we can quantitatively measure the uh, trace elements that exist in the rock varnish. Am I correct? Right, yeah. Um, I mean, there's this wonderful instrument called a portable X-ray fluorescence analyzer, or PXRF, and that you can sort of visualize like something uh, like a little bit heavy uh, hairdryer. It's got about the size and shape of a, of a hairdryer. It uh, weighs a little bit more than that. And so that's easily uh, portable into the field. It's uh, battery operated, so you can pretty much with a couple of batteries uh, operate it for a whole day. And all you really need to do to make a measurement is you take this thing and uh, hold it against uh, whatever you want to measure, the rock surface, the petroglyph, and uh, press the trigger for something like uh, 30 seconds uh, to maybe two minutes or so. And then you have a measurement. And so it's very easy in, within one day or so to make 100 measurements. And so that's another great advantage of this method is uh, you can get a lot of data. And uh, with a lot of data, you can do statistics. And any error that may be in, involved in a, in a single measurement can be either identified by being a statistical outlier or averaged over if you make a, a whole lot of measurements. So what, what we're measuring and we're looking for is we take our machine and look in the interstices, if that's, if that's the right word. We're looking for a spot where we can get a clean measurement within the glyph itself, correct? Right, yeah. I mean, you basically, the spot size of this instrument is eight millimeters. Um, what's that? A, a third of an inch uh, for those who think right. in inch units. And uh, you can actually narrow it down to three millimeters, but typically the best measurements you get with the eight millimeter spot size. So all you need to do is basically you look at your, uh, your rock art element, your antelope or uh, your desert bighorn that's been depicted. And then you find the spot that's at least eight millimeter in size. 
and then you make a measurement. And what you measure is actually the concentration of manganese, because manganese is sort of the diagnostic element uh, for rock varnish. And you do this uh, ideally within three, four, five spots within the same rock art, same petroglyph, the same rock art element. And also you make the same kind of measurements in the untouched, in the intact uh, rock varnish that's surrounding your petroglyph. And then from the ratio between what you measure on the petroglyph itself and in the surrounding intact uh, virgin desert varnish, rock varnish, from that ratio, you can then get an idea as to how long that petroglyph has been sitting there exposed to the formation of fresh new varnish on its surface. So we need we need some means to, to calibrate it, don't we? We need some sort of measure to uh, understand what that ratio might mean chronologically, correct? Exactly. And that's uh, the most difficult part, really, of this whole approach. You need calibration surfaces. And as I pointed out uh, before, in Saudi Arabia, we were very lucky because uh, people may have made these uh, datable inscriptions. And uh, in North America, that's much more difficult because uh, there are there's no writing. People have not developed writing there. Native people have not developed writing in North America. So we don't have inscriptions uh, that have datable types of, of scripts. But uh, there are other things. Uh, there are transitions like uh, the, that from the atlatl and spear to the bow and arrow, which happened uh, some 2,000, uh, 1,500, 2,000 years ago. There are also at other sites uh, particular kinds of uh, sandals that the Native Americans wore and that show up in rock art. And uh, those sort of things, again, give you time markers that you can use to determine the rate of new formation, reformation uh, of varnish on the petroglyphs, and thus again develop a, a measurement of the rate at which varnish accumulates. And once you know that rate, then you can determine the age of um, unknown petroglyph surfaces. So in other words, if you know that uh, X amount of, uh, of manganese forms over a thousand years, then if you measure two or three times that amount on a petroglyph, you know that it must be about two, three thousand years old. Yes. And so we have the, the changes in technology. We've got the use of the otlatl. We've got the bow and arrow depicted. We also have some historic cliffs that will give us some sort of contact date. Right. And we try to sort of look at the superimposition or the way in which we expect to see the different images uh, and how they are depicted. Right. I just I just published a, a little booklet, a small book, on the depiction of projectile points that exist in the Koso rock art. And uh, those projectile points are a specific style of rock art, and they date to the Middle Archaic. And so we can use those as sort of an anchor as well, which it would be, which would be for uh, a further interest certainly, because we have some sort of a a diagnostic. Yeah, and in fact, yeah. uh, on one of the most recent site that uh, I worked on in North America, which is in northern Utah, we also uh, used a particular style of projectile point as a as a time marker. So that's uh, quite useful if uh, you have identifiable objects such as. Uh, 
projectile points with a with a specific outline. Do you remember what projectile point form it was, and and what the age was generally for that form? I can't actually tell you right now off the top of my head. I'm yeah, have to look that up. Yeah, I'm going to have to look at that too. That would be interesting. Yeah. It appears that there's a prominence. There's only a particular time in prehistory, and it seems to be rather consistent that throughout the Americas, there was what was called a fluorescence in, in uh, what some researchers call a hunting religion, and that just existed in the Middle Archaic from about 2000 BC to about uh, AD 1. And that's sort of the, the dating on many of these projectile point images. So it's just it's just interesting to think about and to see uh, how that all ferrets out. So you were saying the the Odyssey here. You began doing this in the Middle East, correct? That's right. Yeah. And how did that go? What did you learn? What did you discover? What? How did this? How was your technique refined? And um, and how did this this whole uh, research position or research project uh, develop? Well, I had uh, a collaboration actually with colleagues in, in Saudi Arabia before when I was uh, still not really thinking about rock art, and uh, but I wanted to go to places in, in Saudi Arabia where I could surely find uh, good developed desert varnish to make measurements on the geochemical aspects of it. We were also interested in seeing whether we could find any evidence for the involvement of, of microbes in the formation of the desert varnish. So I thought, well, have not have not been in Saudi Arabia before and not really knowing where to go. How can I go to a place where I for sure find uh, desert varnish? And um, I read some articles about Saudi Arabia. And so then I stumbled on rock art there. And I said, well, yeah, I mean, that's for sure a place where I find desert varnish because I can see all those pictures of rock art carved into, into desert varnish. So I said, okay, well. For my first uh, field trip to, to Saudi Arabia, I just go to this place in the middle of um, sort of central uh, Saudi Arabia where all these pictures were made uh, showing rock art uh, surrounded by good rock varnish. And then I went there and was just totally fascinated by what I actually saw in, in the rock art. There were some uh, scenes where you saw men in lines sort of dancing. Uh, there were other scenes where we saw lots of camels. Uh, there were various kinds of, of animals, a uh, kind of a goat species that's uh, very abundant there. And I, th I thought, well, maybe I should actually uh, focus more on the rock art. And, and I was, as I've mentioned before, uh, it's kind of hopeful that the archaeologists would be able to tell me ages of this rock art. I, I saw that the, the guys that were dancing, they were covered with a varnish that was almost completely as dark as the surroundings and the camels oh, wow. were a lot lighter colored and some of the, uh, the ibexes, uh, this uh, wild desert goats uh, sort of seemed to range all through the different kinds of, of rock varnish thickness, uh, suggesting that people have been depicting ibexes from the pre-Neolithic, basically up to yesterday. 
Sort of in a similar way, like you see Bitcoin cheap uh, in, in North America, which also go from the beginning of the Holocene 10,000 years ago to uh, very, very recent. So that's one thing as an aside that people apparently like to depict these sort of, these sort of game animals, fancy game animals, anywhere in the world. Uh, you see uh, fancy game animals depicted in the rock art in northernmost uh, Scandinavia, way north of the polar circle. Anyway, I was just fascinated by, by the rock art and then decided to actually make a project out of it. Let's, let's hold it there and we'll pick it up on the next segment. Thanks, gang. See you in the flip-flop. Welcome back to uh, episode 99. We've almost hit the 100 mark. This is uh, your host, Dr. Alan Garfinkel, for the Rock Art Podcast on the Archaeology Podcast Network. And we are absolutely thrilled that Meinrad Andre has given us the time on his busy schedule as a biogeochemist to talk about his adventures in rock art dating. Andy, so let's continue to talk about your experiences in Saudi Arabia when you began this research project? Well, I mentioned uh, this site in, in central Saudi Arabia, the uh, region of near a city called Ha'il. The fascination they had with uh, the incredible range of uh, things depicted and the incredible time periods that were covered. Um, as I mentioned, these uh, dancers uh, that we saw that uh, were very ancient, they must have been uh, carved into rock uh, in the early early part of the Holocene in the pre-Neolithic period. Uh, so that would be something like 9,000 years ago. It's actually quite amazing the artistic skill of uh, these uh, pre-Neolithic uh, artists. Uh, it shouldn't surprise us too much that people even that long ago had great artistic skills. We just have to think of the cave paintings in France. But these people actually managed to uh, use a somewhat more difficult uh, material, the rock surface, to create this fascinating art. I've then gone to a number of other places in Saudi Arabia where maybe the rock art is not quite as old, but uh, incredibly skillful, uh, skillfully done as well. We went to a place called Najran, the southernmost uh, Saudi Arabia, to see both from my geochemist's point of view, if there was anything different in the way the composition of the varnish uh, was at that site and in the rate at which the varnish formed, found a wonderful uh, assembly of uh, human figures, uh, female dancers uh, that were created uh, probably about 5,000 years ago to well, 5,000 to 3,000 years ago and uh, then conversely, I ended up going to the very northernmost part of Saudi Arabia, just um, a few uh, kilometers south of the border with Jordan. And again, for a whole different uh, set of imagery, uh, again, going back to the uh, earliest part of the Holocene, again, ages of 9,000 years or so, and spanning uh, through uh, the entire history of pre-Islamic and going into Islamic Arabia, images that uh, were created in maybe something like 1,000 years to 500 years ago. And interestingly enough, uh, there was a, a pre-Islamic monastery in that region that uh, 
existed uh, probably about AD 400, uh, roughly in that, uh, that period. And the monks in this uh, monastery carved crosses and other religious symbols into the sides of, of one of the, the little mountains, little hills there. And they could be dated uh, again to that period of about, uh, about 400 AD. So that's one of the really fascinating things, I think, about uh, studying rock art and dating rock art is that uh, if you go to a given site, you actually find that rock art at the same place has been created over up to 10,000 years or so, more or less continuously by different people who have come and gone and who must have all had some sense that there was something special about this place and expressed that sense in uh, by creating rock art. What was the most exciting discovery that you've made in your research so far? Uh, most exciting, of course, is always really difficult. Uh, but uh, something that, uh, that just stunned me on my last trip to, to Saudi uh, last year was, again, the skill of, of rock artists. Uh, this measurement, this field site, is uh, sort of in the, in the southwest of Saudi Arabia, on top of a hill. And what you find there is extremely intricately carved depictions of um, several birds uh, in uh, three-dimensional detail, and as well as, uh, as ram's heads, again, in extremely sophisticated uh, styling. And dating that material comes up with uh, something like six to 8,000 years ago. Amazing, huh? So there were these, uh, these carvers that were eminently skillful and created this rock art uh, at a time when we thought that, uh, well, you know, there must have been some very primitive people in the region, but no, they were not. They were extremely skilled artists. And I think that's really what strikes me the most about studying rock art is just how skilled people were at the time when all they had was stone tools and agriculture hadn't been invented yet, uh, but uh, yet these people were very skillful. So you've been most impressed with some of the sophistication and the beauty and the aesthetics of these of this imagery that is very early. These yeah. are preliterate -liter, pre people living um, a very challenging environment and one that um, they had the wherewithal and sophistication to produce these uh, images that were absolutely extraordinarily beautiful. Exactly. Yeah. No, I mean, again, also in North America, you find uh, extremely uh, impressive images. Um, I remember from one area in um, Wyoming, yes, um, <laughs> sometimes I make so many, I've been working so many areas that sometimes I have to really think about where is actually something that I've seen in Wyoming, where there's just a fascinating kind of, uh, of, uh, of depictions there that can rival any, any, any modern art that, uh, that you may see in a museum today. What did you find in Wyoming? Oh, there is a, a number of depictions of strange human-like beings that have very bizarre shapes, uh, strange heads with strange protuberances coming out, out of the heads, um, uh, just very magical figures, especially if you look at them in 
dim light uh, like at uh, in, <laughs> at night after after dark and just uh, in a imagine you're sitting there with um, with a fire and uh, just see all these things in the flickering light of that fire must be just extremely uh, striking if not uh, inducing on fear yeah um, yeah how how old were those figures they're about of the order of three to four thousand years amazing yeah yeah and we don't even know who created them because uh, actually uh, the people that were there didn't leave any clear archaeological marks or so so um, it's um, just prehistoric people and they're North American natives that uh, live in the same area nowadays um, don't uh, actually know or don't relate to, to these images. They say, well, they're, they're sacred things, but um, they don't have any direct connection anymore in terms of oral traditions or so to that particular art. So let's jump to the Koso work, and then we'll uh, talk at, uh, on the, at the end of our interaction about some of the future work that you're going to be doing. So you and I spent uh, about a day working in the Kosos, didn't we? Yes. I think we were impressed with the uh, cross-correlation between the archaeological evidence and the uh, estimations of what, what we had known or thought we knew about the age of those images and the resulting dates that you were able to engineer. Yeah. And I think that some of the things that were, that were striking to me or the discoveries was that we actually did uh, demonstrate some of the, even the most recent milling slicks that were sometimes even superimposed over rock art were, were rather recent. And we even found images that went back 10,000 years. Was, was that correct? Yeah, I mean, that's exactly what I was uh, was trying to refer to before also, is that um, these sites just have an incredible time depth. You have an, on the same spot, uh, you have something that's 10,000 years old, and then uh, 10 meters away, uh, something that's been created uh, just uh, very recently. I mean, these slicks, actually, what was interesting about them was that uh, they had a defined age. So uh, sometimes... What we find is that um, recent vandalism uh, actually creates a surface with no detectable manganese, no detectable varnish. But these surfaces actually had an age that was somewhere probably about 400 years uh, around that time. And so they were definitely made by prehistoric people, but by very recent prehistoric people. So again, those uh, measurements that we made at, um, at Little Lake the site that you're referring to, they show that just a long occupation going back, times that are really almost impossible to sort of wrap your head around, what's 10,000 years? I mean, we sort of think in terms of years and decades or centuries or something like that, but something like 10,000 years and people coming and going in the same place over thousands and thousands of years and using that site for purposes, uh, religious purposes, hunting, um, living, becomes even hard to imagine how many different people, how many different um, tribes, populations have been in that place and 
leaving behind rock art that allows us actually to see that they were there and in a certain sense to see what they were thinking about because they carved things such as bighorn sheep, which uh, we can still relate to and which make us puzzled. Why did they actually depict bighorn sheep? Was it because um, uh, they thought making those images would help their hunting? Was it because um, they were markings of tribal identity? People are guessing, but it's very difficult uh, to actually distinguish between those those possibilities. Absolutely. And there's probably uh, many, many reasons over the course of thousands of years yeah. that those that those images were produced right. for, for various times and settings. But overall, when we worked on the COSO issue, what was impressive to me was that we could see the evolution and the changes in land use, the cultural replacements, the the uh, shifts in settlement, site function, etc., could all be seen looking at the way those sites were dated, the images were dated, and the actual subject matter. And I always like that the um, rock art is unusual because it really is a window into the minds and the, the sensitivities and the passions of the people that were living there. Right. In one way, I, th- I think rock art is some of the most informative data sets that we can have in terms of archaeology because it gives us a sense of the people, right. who they were and what, and what they cared about. Did you get that sense when uh, you've been working on these projects? Yeah, definitely. And uh, it's, that's, as you say, that's a unique thing really about rock art which you don't get from lithic remains or something like that, uh, an arrow point or something like that. Uh, Yes, uh, you know that it was a a hunting or or fighting weapon, but uh, rock art really, in the same way that art is used now, is just something about some way that people express their mind, their soul, their ideals. And that's really the unique thing. And that's what keeps me fascinated about it. Absolutely. We only have about a minute or two, Andy. Perhaps uh, talk about where you're going to head it next and where your research is going. Yeah, my next uh, site that I'm going to be working on is again in Saudi Arabia. It's an area called Al-Ula. And uh, the fantastic thing about it is it's uh, an incredibly rich uh, amount of inscriptions there, which again are going to help me in calibrating my, my age metering, uh, my uh, rate of, uh, of varnish formation. In addition to the, and, and again, a very rich uh, amount of rock art, so um, I'm just going there now for a few days to make like a, a survey, photographic survey, to map out the places that I want to go back and study in detail probably this fall. And the interesting thing also about this area is it's a very different time window. It flourished sort of around the time of about um, 1000 BC up into the uh, period of, uh, of Islam. And uh, so that's a, a time period that I haven't been looking at so much in detail before. And that's really well represented there. There's also fascinating tombs that uh, are similar to um, the famous Petra site in, in Jordan, which were created in the time of the Nabataeans, about um, more or less about uh, 0 um, AD. 
So uh, I'm really looking forward to, to that project uh, because it's going to show me something that's unique and new and that I haven't been working on before. Andy, that's, that's about all the time we have. I really want to thank you for your time and, and your effort. And I think you've uh, produced some remarkable contributions that help us to date rock art. And thank you for your time. And it was a blessing and an honor to have you on the Rock Art Pop Podcast today. Thank you very much. I enjoyed our conversation and uh, look forward to future interactions and uh, maybe future collaboration with you again. Pleasure. Well, God bless uh, you all out there in uh, archaeology podcast land and see you on the flip-flop uh, in a couple of weeks. Thanks for listening to the Rock Art Podcast with Dr. Alan Garfinkel and Chris Webster. Find show notes and contact information at www.arcpodnet.com forward slash rock art. Thanks for listening and thanks for sharing this podcast with your family and friends. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.